Good morning, everyone. This is Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton. We're at 103.3 FM on your radio dial, and you can also stream us on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And you're listening to Under the Surface, and I'm your host, Amy Landau. Thanks for joining me. My guest for today is very important to me, and you'll see why in a moment. He's someone I've known for my entire life who has probably influenced me more than any one person. He introduced me to books, taught me to ride a bike, brought me to museums, shared his passion for writing, art, and the intellect. Yet, what I love most about him is his kindness and his emotional intelligence or sensitivity and his authenticity as a human being. He's none other than my own father, Sidney Ivan Landau, and I'm incredibly pleased that he's agreed to allow me to interview him. My father is a very interesting person, and you might think I'm just being biased when I say that, but I guarantee you it's true. For one thing, you'll find that he's an excellent conversationalist and quite outspoken in his opinions. He also has a wonderful sense of humor. But let me give you some background information on his life before we get started. My father was born in New York City and grew up in Astoria, Queens, which was then a working-class neighborhood. His was one of the few Jewish families in a mostly Irish Catholic neighborhood. He lived there when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. As a high school student, he was always a writer. He became the editor of his school newspaper, in fact. He skipped a grade and went to Queens College while living at home with his family. He then served in the Army from 1954 to 56, most of it in Germany, near Frankfurt. Afterward, he went to graduate school at the famous Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa, where he studied creative writing. He had a series of unusual jobs. He then married my mother, whom he met in New York City on a blind date, and got a job teaching freshman English at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Eventually, he returned to New York and got a job with Funk and Wagnalls, the publishing company, as a lexicographer. That is an editor of Dictionaries on East 24th Street in a converted stable. This was the start of his long, distinguished career in lexicography or in dictionaries. He worked for about 40 years as a lexicographer, from 1961 to the year 2000. From Funk and Wagnalls, he went on to work at Doubleday, John Wiley and Sons, and Cambridge University Press. He wrote a book on the making of dictionaries called Dictionaries, the Art and Craft of Lexicography, that was first published in 1984 by Scribner's with its second edition published in 2001 by Cambridge University Press. It's a unique book, really the only one of its kind, because it explains in detail and in layman's terms how dictionaries are put together. My father is now retired at 84 years old. He and my mother lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, a block away from Central Park, for most of their married lives, in the place where I grew up but they now live in a retirement community in New Jersey. So that was a lengthy introduction, I know, and now it's time to talk to the actual man himself. So thank you for agreeing to be my guest today, Dad. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, You were born in New York City, and you grew up in Astoria, Queens, right? That's right. What was life like in Astoria in those days, back in the 40s when you were growing up? Well, we lived on a sort of bleak block uh, where there were occasional trees, I think, on one side. On our side of the block was filled with um, railroad flats. That's where we lived. 
Right. On the other side, uh, there were sort of two family houses that were attached with little stoops. And uh, it was, a, 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 as you said, an Irish working class neighborhood where um, the woman who had an apartment on the ground floor where we lived had six kids. And at a certain point, she'd send one of her kids to the corner Irish bar to come back with a pitcher of beer. I I think nowadays they wouldn't give a pitcher of beer to a child, but they did then. Wow. That sounds like... It's an interesting neighborhood. That sounds like something out of Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Almost. And you you didn't have a lot of money, right? Your family was pretty poor. We were. Yeah, we... My father was ill most of the time, and there was... We didn't have medical insurance, of course, and... uh, in fact, he died when I was 13, and he was 51. And there were, I had three older brothers, and um, so we we um, it was a struggle, and uh, it was um, um, and I say a railroad flat, right? With a lot of most of the people worked as truck drivers or delivery of uh, men and various kinds, and so it was a struggle for us. But it was all right. Right. And how did your mother make do then? I mean, financially for you and your three well, brothers? Fortunately for her, one of her sisters had married a rich man. Oh, you, right. you know about yes. this. It was the, the, uh, a very rich man. So his, her, her sister, Pauline, managed to get my mother hired as a tea taster. This Wexler company had imported coffee and he later went on to own Restaurants Associated, a mm-hmm. huge, profitable company with many fancy restaurants. He owned a palatial estate upstate New York, as a matter of fact. At any rate, he sent a check for $100 a month to my mother, which which uh, helped a lot. I remember us waiting for the check to come in the mail and and exulting when it arrived in wow. time to pay the rent, you know. Yeah, and I know you had, you mentioned, you have, of course, you have three other brothers, and th- they were pretty far apart in age, especially your two oldest brothers, and you were pretty close to your brother Richard, right? That's right. Richard was only four years older. The others were uh, seven and eight and a half years older. Mm-hmm. So Richard was the one I knew best and was home with me most of the time. Do you remember the things that you would do together, the, the games you might might have played or anything like that? Well, I think you were going to bring up Fuzzy Dog oh, Rosenthal. So yeah. Well <laughs> Tell us that. about Fuzzy when, Dog. Okay. When I was 11 years old, 11, two of my brothers, I think Marty and Richard, gave me a stuffed animal, a little dog, which we named. And, of course, I was shocked and, and very much annoyed to get a stuffed animal at the age of 11. But they assured me that they would they would make it interesting and play games. And they thought he was very cute, and he was. He was a little maybe six inches high, uh, with with big ears and brown fur. Yes. And a ribbon around his neck. And so so they did. They we invented many imaginative games they did where where for example Fuzzy Dog Rosenthal wanted to join the US Army but was denied because of his height. He was only six inches tall and that was below the standard uh, and so, you know, they had lots of fun with things like that. And actually, it worked out that we all uh, grew to love uh, 
this uh, stuffed animal had lots of fun with it. Right. It's kind of neat that that stuffed animal connected you when you at In first. In fact, I kept him. Yeah. You may know. For yeah. About sixty years. I know. And, uh, I know because Dad, I restored him. Yes, I know. I restored and him. It was, <laughs> it was only when we moved out of New York, which is uh, recently, last uh, yeah. December, that I finally decided to discard him. It's interesting that the games revolved around the U.S. Army, and that makes me think about how you were growing up during World War II, and maybe the uh, the idea of the Army was very real in a way that it might not be for everybody today. Or not. Yeah, you wanted to know about the um, Pearl Harbor attack, and I remember it quite vividly, in fact, because we had a map of the world. There was a paper map that was taped to one of the doors between our railroad. When when the attack occurred, no one knew where Pearl Harbor was or what it was. And I remember my older brothers uh, seeking to find it on the map. And they said, here it is. Oh, it's all <laughs> way out there in, in Hawaii somewhere. Yeah. And uh, so it was quite a, an exciting event. We, we didn't know, of course, the import of it, that it would lead to war or anything. It was mm-hmm. just a shocking event. So you you thought of it as shocking but exciting in an imaginative way, not not as much of a scary way. No, as... and, and in fact, we didn't realize how devastating it had been that so many um, sailors had lost their lives and that ships had been sunk. The, I don't even know if it was described at the time. It was just said the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and we said, "What is this?" I I didn't know anyone had died at first. You know, right. So just to backtrack a little, though, I want to get back to that topic, too. I know that you uh, were very close to your friend Pete Katsaris, and he was you were one of the few Jewish families in your neighborhood, as I said, but Pete came from a Greek family, right? That's right. He's, uh, his father was Greek, and his mother was West Indian, in fact. Mm-hmm. And even though you weren't, very re- you weren't religious, really, and you were Jewish, you spent some Christmas with, with that family? Yes, it was. They were extraordinarily generous people, uh, the Casarises. And uh, Pete had a brother and two sisters. And uh, his father was a very funny guy. He was a waiter. In those days, uh, waiters it was a lifelong occupation. Not today, when you know kids come and go. And he'd been a waiter for years. And he and. Uh, they they didn't have much money either. In fact, they lived in a, a two-bedroom apartment, and there were, as I said, four children, mother and father, and I think an uncle or aunt mm-hmm. who had stayed with them as well. Somehow they were squeezed into that apartment. So when they and they were very generous, I was frequently invited to join for meals um, with them. And his mother made wonderful meatloaf, which I look forward to. And they invited me for their Christmas morning uh, celebration, in fact. And uh, it was a great honor. I just sat quietly and watched. But it was a, it was a completely joyous occasion. I mean, um, it was, I don't mean to wax sentimental, but it, it almost evoked something out of Dickens, you <laughs> know, because they didn't have much money at all. Yeah. And the father who presided over like a master of ceremonies was very funny and he would make jokes and he would mm-hmm. crack them up and they would give each other things like handkerchiefs or socks. But the other thing that was remarkable is that they were extremely liberal in talking about uh, sexual things. Their really? matters, their, 
because they had no privacy. Oh. And they joked about female and male anatomy in a way that completely shocked me because my family would never have talked about anything like that. And they laughed about such things uproariously. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a completely liberating experience to me, and uh, I enjoyed it. Wow. Do you remember if they also gave you a present? No, they didn't give me a present, which I was grateful for, and they didn't expect me to give anything. I was just a witness. I see. Okay. I also wanted to ask you a little bit about your father, because I know that he was in the silk weaving industry at one point, and I know that he died when you were only 13. Well, he was ill most of the time when I was alive. Right. Um, And so my older brothers knew him when he was not ill, and he was a different person. Right. And we always... You know, we some of the time he was paralyzed. He was often sent to the hospital and so on. Right. So he was a, for me, he was a figure of some mystery and not a little terror. In uh-huh. fact, I was a bit afraid of him. Yeah. One time I remember, I'll never forget it. He was paralyzed on one side, I think his right side, and he was lying in the bed. And I had to go through the room to get to the kitchen from my room. Mm -hmm. And I knew he was paralyzed on the right side. And suddenly his right arm went straight up into the air. Sort of like a zombie, you know, that scared me to death. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah, but what I was really wondering about was about his ventures. That you re- do you remember him opening a grocery store? You'd yes, mentioned. I do. Mm-hmm. He was he opened the gro- it was ill for this again was sort of he applied he got a loan from this rich uncle I, I mentioned mm-hmm. before in order to get the money to open and stock the store, and uh, it was a small grocery store around the corner, not too far from where we live, and. Uh, uh, I didn't know he'd had a grocery store. You told me recently that he'd had a store in Patterson, New Jersey. I never knew that. So I guess he'd some, had some experience in it. Mm-hmm. But it was ill-fated to begin with. I mean, it, mm-hmm. uh, no sooner had he opened it than a huge A&P supermarket opened up diagonally across the street. You know, yeah. so that spelled the death of his, his store. And I just remember the trouble he had of leaking refrigeration units and small floods to catch up. And so the, the thing never worked out, and he, he was a total loss. Wow. And it's interesting because now we have like a giant Whole Foods, say, opening up, drowning out what would have been an A&P. So the, that story well, kind of continues. Well, that's in Manhattan, a totally yeah. different place. Yeah. Right. But it's New York City. So I just wanted to ask you about the kids in your neighborhood, too. Tell me about some of the, because, of course, this was pre-tech. <laughs> what sort of games would you play with kids? Well, all right, I will. I I was not a great athlete, but I was athletic. I, most kids, I, I wanted to engage in sports activities. I had a lot of energy. So, And this was, remember, when I was eight years old, eight, nine, ten, whatever. And so there were street games that the kids all played, and uh, they, I they let me participate in the games. One was slap ball, where you painted chalk bases on the, on each side of the street, and a kid would bounce a rubber ball, and you would slap it, and another kid would try to field it and throw the first, like baseball. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there was we had stoop ball, which the people across the street in the better in the better residences did not like, uh, or uh. even on our side. When stoop ball, you you had a Spalding, and you would fling it at at the stoops on our side of the street, which were three or four 
stoops. And mm-hmm. the idea was you tried to get it on the point where at the between the riser and the flat part of the stoop, mm-hmm. so that the ball would ricochet off at a oh, great velocity. Oh, you mean the, that that edge? I see what you're talking about. That's what you were trying to hit that 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 border at on the, the edge. edge. Yes. Exactly. Okay. And uh, sometimes you would miss it, but at any rate, the idea was that the the kids standing in the street, hopefully no cars were coming, would catch the ball on the fly, and that meant there was an out. If the ball eluded him somehow and bounced, that would be a single. If it bounced twice, it was a double. And if it went over his head to the other side of the street, it was a home run. You know, so you kept score in that way. Now. This was always had to be interrupted by cars passing by or by irate people saying we should get out of there because we're mm-hmm. making too much noise. You know, but that's one of the games we played. And that was a, a game. I, I don't quite remember the rules for it, but, you know, they were they were somewhat anti-Semitic. Uh, they never beat me up, but they would abuse me verbally at times. So whenever there was any dispute about whether a kid was safe or out in this and I was involved, then, then the element of my Jewishness would come up, and uh, that would offend me, and then I would leave the game. So I'd mm-hmm. go home and sulk for a few days until I got too uh, restless, and then I'd come out, and they would accept me again until the next time. Wow, so they called you um, epithets, bad names. Yeah, put dirty Jew, and yeah. they accused Jews of killing Christ and mm-hmm. so on. You know. I never realized that you were interacting with these kids. I thought that this was just I, I random did. strangers. I did. Okay, yeah. so you were actually The only playing. friend I had, I had, uh, there was one Protestant kid, I don't know if religion was the issue or not, who happened to live right above me in, in my very apartment, and he never abused me, but on the other hand, he never defended me either, and I don't blame him. Uh, mm-hmm. That was just the way it was. He would have uh, lost face with his own crowd if he had defended Right, mm-hmm. right. There was one time, I, I don't know if I told you this, was when, I mean, I abided by this uh, up to a point, and there was one time when I just had it up to here with them, and I, I'm not physically brave. I'm a physical coward, in fact. In fact, there was a game they played, I forget where, the, the, I think the idea was to throw a ball to a kid in the street, and the kid in the street was the Jew, actually, and that they'd go by and try to hit him, so it was, you know, not a benign game. Of course, mm-hmm. I never played that game, I would desist, but I was so furious with them that they were lined up very dramatically on the sidewalk, you know, mm-hmm. with a... You know how there are lines between squares on sidewalks to give them room to expand. And there must have been eight or ten kids there. And I said, I stood on on one side and I said, uh, I dare you to step across this line. Oh, to step past where you were standing? Yeah, because they knew I was serious. In other words, the first kid who stepped across the line would get a punch in the mouth, you Mm -hmm. know. Of course, any one of those kids could have beaten me yeah, up because yeah. I didn't know how to fight. I was totally uh, defenseless. But but what I want to say is that none of them crossed the line, and then wow. I had to I had to go home. I had to walk across the street to my apartment, and I knew that I had to walk in this stately, measured pace, as though I were in a wedding ceremony. Very slow, because I knew psychologically that if I ran, they'd catch up to me, and they'd beat me up. 
Ah, and so I walked I slowly yeah. to my apartment, my heart beating wildly. <laughs> wow, you never told me this story. That's amazing. So in a way, it was all just the way that you carried yourself. Right, and that... I, got, I got to the, the opening of my door, and I opened the door slowly, and then, of course, I ran up the stairs and slammed the door of my <laughs> apartment because I got away with it. Yeah. So just to, so I completely understand that there was, the only kid that was in the street that they were trying to hit as part of the game was the other Jewish kid? No, there was no other Jewish kid. The oh. kid in the street was just called the Jew. Oh. The point was, you hit the Jew, you know. Oh, and so so when you were saying, I dare you to cross this line, what was? Wh- why would they have wanted to cross that line? What was going on at that point? The point is, I was challenging them to fight. That, no, okay. this was, and, mm-hmm. and there were, in a way, I respect them for that, you know, in an odd way. I, of course, I hated a lot of them at the time, although I, but after many years, I realized that they, they weren't bad kids. Mm-hmm. They, they were okay. They, they fought among themselves. I remember, but they never fought me. They never beat me up physically, but they fought among themselves. And I remember I would see fights all the time with fists, you know, flying. And once one kid was fighting another, and the kids, one of the kids' mother came down with a baseball bat. Far from trying to break it up, she wanted <laughs> her son to beat the other up with a baseball bat. But oh, wow. fortunately, someone broke it up before it came to that. You know? mm-hmm. So it was, mm-hmm. it was a, potentially, it, it wasn't as violent as it could be. I mean, that's how I grew up. But all of this was going on during World War II, right? Yes, it was. It was during World War II, and there was also there was uh, there were Nazi bunds in the area, which continued during the early years of World War II. Wait, there was you a, said a word I didn't get. Nazi what? Bund, B-U-N-D. It's a it's a social organization uh-huh. uh, that the uh, Nazis encourage, and that uh, sympathizers of the Nazi cause. Maintain and probably still do in some parts of the U.S. today. I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt it. Mm-hmm. But they marched around with swastikas and and saluting Hitler. You know. So. Wow. So you were completely conscious of what was going on then. With I mean, how much did you know about what was going on in Nazi Germany? Absolutely. There was one German kid in the area who publicly mounted a stoop one time and made a speech about how wonderful it was Hitler was doing to the Jews, actually. Did you know that that Jews were being brought to concentration camps and being killed? I don't think I did, but Mm -hmm. we knew about the rabid Mm anti-Semitism of the regime. I don't think I knew about that. Mm -hmm. Wow, I didn't realize that it was so much in your face on that level. It was, but nonetheless, as I said, I... We had a, a working relationship where for years I, um, I I played with most of these kids. Right. Until I got old. And then, of course, once I got old enough uh-huh. to get at the high school age, I, I had a broader set of friends and I could get out of the neighborhood. Uh-huh. And... What, but what do you remember about hearing about the war as a kid? Or did your parents talk about it? Did you listen to the radio? I mean, was that a, a source of anxiety or not really? Well... I don't think they talked about it a lot. You know, it was such a struggle to, uh, you know, to to feed us and to clothe us and to um, maintain our life at all that I don't think they talked about. We were very much aware 
there was rationing. It certainly affected us. There was rationing. There were paper shortages. Right. There were, and there was a lot of news about gold store mothers, that is, uh, mothers who had lost their sons mm-hmm. in the war. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of that. Right. And were you conscious of, uh, first of all, when the U.S. joined the war? And, I mean, was that something, and or when the war ended? Oh, we were very kind. My oldest brother, Lou, was actually drafted and uh, was served in the uh, Signal Corps in in the Philippines mm-hmm. in the, during the war. He was you know, mounted. He used to tell stories about one time in the latter part of his uh, tour where he knew there were, on the same island, there were Japanese. The enemy mm-hmm. was uh, just over the hill. And they were at one point, and they'd be watching a film that was projected on the screen, and he fancied that the Japanese were watching it from the other side. (laughs) Wow. And this is Uncle Lou, right? Yes, that's right. And so do you remember when the war ended? Do you remember cheering and celebration? Well, I definitely remembered that. And, of course, I remembered vividly when Franklin Roosevelt died. It it happened to be the day after my birthday, which was April 11th. He died on April 12th, 1944. And there was uh, massive expressions of sorrow and Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. grieving for him dying. He was very uh, much venerated. And, of course, I remembered D-Day, which was in June 44, and then... uh, Mm-hmm. The papers were were full of it, and uh, and of course I remember the end of the war in forty five. And I know that when you went to Queens College, you joined that you became politically active, and you joined the the Young Liberals. That's right. What was that yeah. all about? The Young Liberals. My older brother Richard, though he didn't go to Queens College, had had friends who uh, were his age who did. And uh, I guess through that, I became a member of the group. This was an anti-communist uh, group, the Young Liberals, associated vaguely, I think, with the Liberal Party in New York City. And um, you know, it was a small group. I was certainly not a leader in it, but I was a member of it. And and uh, in those days, there were, the Young Communists were a, a powerful group on campus, and they there would be big arguments in the cafeteria and so on, and they were a legal recognized group. And at one time, uh, the young liberals um, invited a woman named Celia Zitron, I remember her name, who claimed that she had been in a Soviet slave labor camp. Mm-hmm. Now, now we have to realize in those days, no one knew anything about such things. They were they were the Soviets said there was a ridiculous lie, what today would be called fake news, but then was just said it was an absurd invention mm-hmm. of the you know of the anti communist press, mm-hmm. but it wasn't even widely even known, and I didn't know whether it was true either. I just knew this was a way that the young liberals hoped to increase our membership it was a mm-hmm. It was a spectacular claim. Mm-hmm. And this woman was willing to make it, and we expected to be heckled, if not attacked, by the young communists who made it clear that they would. Uh, and in fact, they did uh, heckle and so on. But no one was physically attacked, fortunately. And and the woman came, 
very brave, and I now know uh, that it was true, mm-hmm. and she gave her speech. I don't remember much about it. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, so we had a big turnout for it, and it was, from our point of view, it was a success. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. The point yeah. there is that I just want to say that the whole attitude and strategy of of the Russian government mm-hmm. has never really changed. I mean, it was the same then and as it is now, just as they say now that they deny that they attacked the, that the cyber attacks. They mm-hmm. say this is totally fake news. Right. It's absurd. Mm-hmm. It's planted. That's what they said then. They said this about everything mm-hmm. that's happened. Mm-hmm. Right. It seems to dovetail well with our current administration's thinking. Well, I think this is a good time to take a little break. So we're going to listen to one of my father's all-time favorite songs, followed by some quick announcements, and we'll be back soon. So stay tuned. Tomorrow, tomorrow never comes. What kind of a fool do they take me for? Tomorrow, a resting place for bums. A trap set in the slums, but I know the score. I won't take no for an answer I was born to be a dancer now, yeah Tomorrow Tomorrow, as they say Another working day And another chore Tomorrow an awful price to pay I gave up yesterday But they still want more They are bound to compare me To Fred Astaire when I'm done yeah. Anyone who feels the rhythm moving through Knows it's gonna do them good to let the music Now. 
feels the rhythm moving through him Knows it's gonna do him good to let the music burst out When you feel it, show it, let the people know it Let your laughter loose until your scream becomes a love Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Ford's Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. And we're back. We just heard the song Tomorrow from Bugsy Malone from the 1970s movie. I played this album for my father, Sidney Landau, who's my guest today, back when I was a kid, and he's adored that song ever since. Unfortunately, the singer of that song was never credited, which is really a travesty. The only thing we know is that Paul Williams wrote the music. Thanks for listening. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is Under the Surface, and you're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJ Northampton. So let's get back to this conversation, though, with my father. Dad, I know you served in the Army in the mid-1950s during the Korean War, and I know that your time in the Army had a profound impact on you. Can you tell me what it was, what it was about your time in the Army that made such a strong impression on you? Sure, I'll be glad to. Um, well, you know, I lived a rather sequestered life up to that point and hadn't uh, I'd never been to Europe I'd never seen met people from other parts of the country and in the army of course you did you met people from remote rural parts of West Virginia who had never been to a doctor in their lives or a dentist and their teeth were rotting and they they'd go to the army dentist and he'd pull out eight teeth and uh, finally They'd get some medical care, and you. I, I've often said I met the, the dumbest and the smartest, and the worst and the best in the army. It's uh, it's uh, it was quite an education. Right, and one of the things that you got educated on was music and jazz, isn't that right? I did become interested in jazz because my friend Dan Moore, one of the, was a drummer, and and he uh, introduced me to jazz, so I became quite a fan of what was then called progressive jazz and people like Stan Getz and Jerry Mulligan and Zoot Sims and, you know, Sonny Rollins. And I filled a footlocker with jazz, mostly jazz records that I got from the PX. You know, they were very cheap. Mm -hmm. And in that connection, I want to tell you a story about that. It was, we had an inspection once where we had to stand at attention and 
officers would come by to see that our beds were properly made up and that we looked spiffy and so on. And the footlocker was always at the, at the foot of the bed, and it was supposed to have all of your underwear and clothes neatly folded, you know, in little rolls and so on. And uh, at this time, a general came by, which was unusual. Usually it wasn't, but a general came by, and the captain, who, of course, we all feared, was conducting him along, and the general paused in front of me. I, I was afraid this would happen. I had my footlocker filled with records, you know, filled <laughs> one end to the other. But I knew that because it was a general, I had nothing to fear. If it was just a captain, I would have been in real trouble. But the general, they ordered me to open the footlocker, which I did, and he saw that it was filled with records. And the general just laughed and he said, well, son, you really like jazz, I see. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. So the captain, you know, lowered at me, but couldn't do anything. So they moved on. The captain couldn't do anything because he wasn't a high he couldn't. He couldn't count, contradict mm-hmm. the general who oh, thought it was funny. That's, so I oh, escaped. Right. There's a, there's a lesson in that. You know, if you if you commit a, a little misfeasance, make sure it's in front of someone at a high enough level that he won't <laughs> care about it. So you mentioned the stenography thing, which I didn't know about, and you said that. So was that part of your job in the army? Well, technically it was, but in fact, the the colonel I worked for rarely gave me any dictation. Mainly, I was just a typist, and and it was a good job because mainly I worked for warrant chief warrant officers, you know, who were very unmilitary. Most of these were lawyers, um, and they were just drafted, and they didn't really care about military uh, spit and polish and that sort of thing. So it was actually uh, quite uh, quite a convenient thing. But you still had to go through all the combat training and carry a rifle and all of that stuff. Well, that was, of course, that was through basic training. And, right. and, and, and the Frankfurt area, it was very cold. It was one of the coldest winters on record. And we still had, you know, the Germans were so poor in those days um, uh, that they still did the KP for us. We didn't have to do KP. They did our laundry. You know, we got laundry from the... The Germans who were around were glad to get any work, but we still had to do guard duty, mm-hmm. and it was that winter was twelve below zero wow. in the winter, and you were supposed to be outdoors mm-hmm. for like two hours at a time or something. Of course, no one did. They all sneaked into buildings for mm-hmm. to warm up, but it was horrible. Uh, one time when I was on on guard duty. There was the officer of the day, as it's called, the guy who's in the officer who's in charge of the soldiers, happened to be one of the lawyers that I worked for, you know, one yeah. of the warrant officers. Mm-hmm. And as I said, these guys didn't really care about military, the gung-ho stuff yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. And there was one person who was on the guard duty who was chosen to be what's called a plenipotentiary. That, that is, he was... His shoes were so shined, his rifle was so clean, his uniform was so perfect that he was relieved from having to serve on duty and was just would sit there as a reserve in case someone got sick, you see. Right. It was a great honor. And, of course, I was far from deserving of this honor. My shoes were dirty, my rifle was not clean, my, mm-hmm. my uniform was not, not the best. But the warrant officer chose me as the plenipotentiary. This was... Pure favoritism. Oh, was that because it was the lawyer that knew you? 
That's right. Oh. That's right. He okay. wanted to do a favor for me. So one of the young guys, what we call the RAs, the regular army, the kids, they were like 18 and 19. These were the gung-ho patriots as opposed to these older guys who were 21, like me, and 22, who were the draftees, you know. One of those guys, knowing the Army rules backwards and forwards, challenged him. Now, this guy being a lawyer, he realized this was a legal challenge. The kid knew what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. So in like a Solomonic decision, he he made... He chose two. He chose Alternates. Two. It was, right. Did I say plenty? It was supernumeraries, I meant to say. Not plenipotentiary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used the wrong word. Okay, uh, okay. And uh, so he chose another one uh, to, to get out of the fix he was in. So two of us sat out, and the other poor guys had to go out in the cold. But the yes, other sir. thing that, that was wonderful about the Army, I made one of my dear friends that I have to this day, you know, John Bowman, who... Mm-hmm who loves to tell this story. With, we, <laughs> yeah, and, and he's told it to me. To yeah. Okay, well, we're getting close to the end here, but there are so many other questions I wanted to ask you. Uh, I know you, you haven't asked me about dictionaries at all. I know. All right, let's 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 jump to dictionaries. You spent 40 years of your life working as an editor of dictionaries or a lexicographer, and I know that you had a huge amount of pressure on you from time to time. What was one of the hardest things that you had to deal with on the job? Well, the hardest things were dealing with my superiors. Uh, there, were, there were times when I was under tremendous pressure to get the job done faster than I knew it could was humanly possible to do it. You know, I calculated how many definitions there were to write, at what rate people could do it, how many people I had, how hard they could work, and so on. You can figure it's just a mathematical puzzle. And it was impossible to do it in the time that they wanted me to do it, you know, uh, with any level of of efficiency or care. So the hardest job was always dealing with the threat that they would abort the whole project, mm-hmm. end it, fire everyone and say we can't afford to do it. Uh, so there was a tension between satisfying the people above me and satisfying my staff, uh, who who worked for me, who demanded um, reasonably to have enough time to do their jobs. So they, from that point of view, I was asking them to compromise the quality of the work by doing a slipshod job to meet an impossible schedule. Right. You see? right. So that was always a tension, a balance. Mm. And I I tried to balance that because I knew I was, in a way, protecting their jobs as well as my own. But it was very dicey. And give us times. give our listeners an example of the scope of what you were dealing with. You, you had to put together a, a medical dictionary at one point. Well, this is, yeah, this was for John Wiley. It was a, the largest medical dictionary in English uh, done that I know of. It was three-volume work. It took nine years. I, you know, I had a staff of five or six people. It wasn't a huge staff, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but it was uh, an immense amount of work. And the staff had to define the the Well, in this case, they didn't write the definitions. I had 70 medical experts uh, scattered around the country and in England, in fact, who wrote the definitions in every medical specialty. I traveled to see them and to and to uh, show them how to write definitions, what not to do. 
and to try to impress upon them that though they may be great medical doctors, I was the boss of the dictionary, and, uh, and I did. And so they wrote these thousands of definitions and sent them back, and it was our job to edit them and, and correct them and also to decide who else should see it. Frequently, a medical term might go to two or three other specialists depending upon the nature of the term, for instance, pediatric oncology, uh, pathology and hematology. I mean, it would go to many different areas in sequence. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, was a, it was a big job, very big job. Yeah. And so when you were at risk of maybe, I mean, when you were afraid that the whole project could be aborted, was that after being working on it for several years? Yes, it was. In fact, I was so afraid of it at one point. I had to go before the board of directors, you know, and uh, and they weren't all in favor of it. Uh, because, you know, they don't realize they're spending a lot of money and they're not getting any money in mm-hmm. for all those years, you know. Right. And they don't understand this. But this is, And uh, I was so desperate that I agreed to take on a second job as manager of medical journals so for a while, I was doing two jobs. I was editor-in-chief of the Medical Dictionary, and I was also managing five or six medical journals in a different office. I had two different offices. I'd take an elevator from one to the other. Really? And Yes. Uh, and it was a good thing to do because I, made, I figured I would make myself so valuable to them that they wouldn't dare discontinue it, you know. So you must have been working very long hours during that time. I was. Very long hours. More than a 40-hour work week. Oh, I I never worked a 40-hour work week. You always worked more than that. And on weekends, too. So uh, we were talking a little bit about this before the show, but what do you think about the the world of dictionaries today? It seems like dictionaries in print form, definitely, it's on the decline, and um, dictionaries are accessed online now. And how does that make you feel? I mean, uh, having spent so much of your life working on dictionaries in print form. Well, there are many advantages to online dictionaries. Um, uh, I won't dispute that at all. And uh, the chief one being that that space is not a big factor. Uh, You can run on to greater lengths. But my criticism of online dictionaries is that you see, think about it in the old days, that is, the print dictionaries. The big expense of the publisher in those days was the cost of printing, paper and printing, was a huge expense. So when the publisher had to do a new edition, the cost, the editorial expenses were comparatively minor compared to the cost of paper and printing and, and typesetting. These were huge. Now, editorial was not, it was not insignificant, but it still wasn't as great. But now, mm-hmm. electronic distribution means that there's no cost of paper and printing, and the cost of production of, of typesetting is really done by the editor uh, with the you know, insertion of type codes and so on. So in those days, there was no impediment to doing a thorough editorial revision because that was a comparatively minor expense. Mm-hmm. But now, that's, that's the big expense. And it's, it's a great temptation, I think, of electronic publishers to cut back on dictionary staff mm-hmm. and only to keep the dictionary up to date by putting in new words. 
they can put in, in their words like tweet and so on. They, they will mm-hmm. find those words and they can put them in. Everyone will be happy to say this dictionary is up to date. But it isn't up to date. In fact, you sent me that article by Michael Rundell, who I know is an interesting lexicographer, and he said it was pointed out to him that the word dictionary itself has not been kept up to date. And he said, well, we'll look into that. It's exactly what I mean. Older words like dictionary, like humor, like social network, networking, have changed dramatically. And unless someone takes the trouble to really examine how the language has changed, those new meanings are not going to be kept up to date because so, there won't be the staff to do it. Right. So then the quality of the words that you The quality get, of the work, the especially definition. as regards the older body of language, will decline. Right. So there's a lot of advantages to uh, electronic dictionaries. I'm not denying that. But I just, I just don't think in terms of the um, keeping the work up to date overall, it's, it's not going to be as good. It's just interesting to think about how different your job would be today if you were if you were working well, today. Well, remember, I actually was on the cutting edge of this change. That's why mm-hmm. in the second edition of my book, right. we were among the first dictionaries, not the first, but among them, to really integrate um, electronic um, production of dictionaries to the editing process. Mm-hmm. And so I know a lot about it. Uh, of course, it's changed, no doubt, but I really know the basics of how it's done. Right. Yes, I remember that edition, and that, and your book is Dictionaries, the Art and Craft of Lexicography, just so our listeners know what we're talking about. Well, now I just wanted to ask you about one last big part of your life, which was your life um, as a runner, as um, somebody oh, who as a runner. ran, yeah. and I know that you ran like eight marathons in the day, and you were one of the early people who took to running in Central Park? Oh, well, there were always people running in Central Park, but I was one of the early runners. I ran in the the first marathon I ran in was New York City in 1973, and that was the third third ever New York City marathon, which had, I don't know, maybe 400, 400 people, and I came in at about two, in the midway, about 200 or so. And, uh, you know, in those days, it was run all in Central Park, which people who know this, it's a very hilly course. If you go four loops of six miles, which goes up many hills, including, you know, a half-mile hill at the north end of the park. And it was held in September, not in the, where it is, when it is now, so it was often warm. And so it was a very tough course. Right. Uh, and. And it was held in 74, I ran in. It was also in Central Park. And then they switched it to the five-borough course, which they have now. So this was 26 miles in Central Park? 26 miles, mm, yeah. So you had to run loops a lot. Right. Well, yeah. you ran you ran 2.2 miles and then four six-mile loops uh, mm-hmm. around the whole park. Okay. So you said there were, I thought you had told me that when you used to run in Central Park, there were not that many runners, and in fact, not many men wearing shorts, and that you even got people shouting at you. Well, that's, that's true. Uh, early, when I, I used to run through the city too, not just in the park. And I remember running along in shorts. Kids would young. Yeah, yell at don't me. say they the were, word they that were... they they yelled though. But it's the derogatory word towards gay men. Right? That's right. Yes. That's mm-hmm. right. They thought I was gay, so they 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 shouted at me because, in fact, it was so uncommon 
that you couldn't get a pair of running shoes or a sweatsuit uh, in New York at the time. There was only one place I knew about where you could get uh, uh, running shoes and a sweatsuit. Believe it or not, that's where it was. Right. But I mean, even if you had been gay, it still would have obviously been totally uh, of inappropriate. Course, but they thought no yeah. one wore short pants then. You know, right. If you wore short pants, you must have been a gay man. So there were other men that were running, but not in short Oh, there were always, okay. yeah, there were. Okay. There were, but not, not too many women. But even then, there were some. There were a few women who, who ran in the races. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've lived through a lot of different presidents and different administrations, including Nixon and Watergate. How do they compare to what we're living through now? This is a different topic, obviously, with Trump. Is what's happening now reminding you of Watergate? Yes, it does, in a way. It does remind me of Watergate. Uh, I think there are many parallels with it. Uh, Nixon was a totally ruthless, unprincipled character, but he was a lot smarter than Trump is. and the people who worked for him were also more qualified. They were, they were better. His administration wasn't as loosey-goosey right. as it is now with mm-hmm. Trump. I mean, and Nixon didn't publicly ridicule or chastise people who worked for him. Uh, mm-hmm. There was none of that. But, but yes, it does remind me of this. But in, in the sense of the, the enormous vulgarity and theatricality, of the Trump administration certainly has no parallel in my lifetime. Nothing like that. Right. One last question. I know that you never liked religion and that you were particularly turned off by synagogue as a kid. And then for most of my childhood, you said you were an atheist. You also said you were for the death penalty, including public hanging. I remember you were very clear about that. And, And now it seems like you've changed on all of these counts. What do you, I have, well, well, I still believe if we're going to if we're going to kill people, we should do it publicly and not behind closed doors. Um, but I don't think we should. I mean, I I changed because I read more literature of the of the numbers of of uh, minority people who are disproportionately condemned to death, and also of the many cases in which people shouldn't have been tried and convicted at all because they were probably innocent. And so I've come to feel that it's not appropriate uh, to uh, to kill anyone, and uh, the state shouldn't do it. Not because I believe the state doesn't have the right to. I just think it's bad policy. It shouldn't do it. I I don't believe that life is sacrosanct and that the state hasn't, because in fact the state sends soldiers off to to die and gives them medals when they die in the, in the course of that they endorse. You know mm-hmm. so. And what about atheism? Did that change after you read the Bible? It wasn't the Bible so much. By maybe reading St. Augustine and other people like that, who I much admire, I just came to believe that uh, so many people smarter than me throughout the years, thousands of years, have believed in God and believed in a higher force, that it almost became a point of, uh, insufferable arrogance to argue otherwise, and I couldn't sustain it and have respect for myself. So I, I've almost reluctantly come to the conclusion that that it's better to believe in God, and so I do. But I, I don't really want to spell it out exactly what I believe in. But I just 
I just am not in sympathy with, with true atheists who strike me as sort of being in bad taste. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they mm-hmm. don't seem to have a sense of humor about anything, and they're very earnest, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't want to be in that league. Well, I think we've come to the end of the show. You've been listening to Under the Surface. I'm Amy Landau talking to my father, Sidney Ivan Landau, about his life. Dad, thank you so much for being a guest on today's show. It's been amazing having you here. Okay. Thanks a lot, Amy. And thanks for listening, everybody. Please tune in again next week, Sunday at 12 noon, and enjoy the rest of your morning. Have a great week. Stand at your gate, and the song that I sing is of moonlight. I stand and I wait for the touch of your hand in the June night. The Sighing a moonlight serenade. The stars are aglow, and tonight, how their light sets me dreaming. My love. Amor